guardian of virgins, the Holy Father Joseph, to whose faithful custody Christ Jesus, innocence itself, and Mary, virgin of virgins, were committed, I pray and beseech thee that through thine intercession I may be spotless in mind, pure in heart, chaste in mind and body, to serve Jesus and Mary all the days of my life. Amen. Name of the Father, Amen. Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Brethren in Christ, laudetu Jesus Christus. In, in This is Timothy Flanders with the meaning of Catholic. Jesus is King. Welcome to another edition of the St. Joseph Dialogos, in which we delve into all of the most controversial topics under the patronage of St. Joseph. I am here with co-host Jake Fowler and new co-host David Holeva and special guest celebrating the fourth annual Ascension Day Ascending His Throne celebration. That's right. Chris Plants is in the house. All the way from California. Thanks for having me. How you doing, brother? I'm doing great. Doing great. So this this show has a, a representation. Uh, David actually pointed out to me we have a representation from all four time zones of the continental United States and Canada. Wait, there are more time zones. In fact, there are, Mister Central Time. Yes, I'm uh, not aware of this. David David is our mountain mountainous time representative in uh, Alberta. Am I right, David? That's Did I that's get my the place, and that's the region. Yep. Excellent. Fantastic. Well, we're, we're really happy to have David with us. We're talking about the Ascension today because today is 40 days after the resurrection. Why is this controversial, you might ask? Well, let me tell you. We talked about the Eastern Catholic critique of the SSPX a couple of weeks ago on the OLV show. And the reason that was so important is because we talked about the, the concept of the Paschal mystery as it is resourced in Vatican II and elsewhere in the 20th century. And it's because it's restoring the theology of the salvific efficacy of the resurrection and the ascension. The Even in the Roman Rite, it says that this, this Mass is offered in memory of thy passion resurrection, and glorious ascension. So today we'll be talking about the salvific aspect of the ascension. What is it? Because it's the reason it's controversial is because there's been, uh, I don't know what we would call it, an obscuring or a forgetting or an excessively emphasizing of the passion, perhaps. But what is the ascension all about? What does it even do for our salvation? Here to tell us about that is Chris Plants. But before we get into the topic, I want to talk about an exciting new opportunity that Chris is unveiling tonight. That's right. It's Chris's Bible study on St. Matthew's Gospel. So this is a this is going to be starting off uh, right after Trinity Sunday. So, Chris, tell us about this this class you have set up through Meaning of Catholic. So, yeah, um, I do Bible studies regularly uh, out in the parishes out here in Los Angeles. Um, Now that I have five kids, uh, you know, driving 30 minutes or 45 minutes to uh, a parish to deliver, a you know, hour, hour and a half, maybe sometimes two hours uh, of lectures on, you know, a book in the Old Testament or New Testament, I've just gotten too busy. So I've been doing more and more online via Zoom. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm, I'm done with school here in the next few weeks. And uh, so I'll have the summer off. And I plan on doing several of these Bible studies. Um, 
And so I figured this would be a good opportunity for us to partner up and continue the conversation that we're going to have tonight about the Ascension, because um, we'll get in a lot of good stuff here in tonight's you know little mini lecture, but there is a lot more to say. And so, um, uh, so I think opening up an opportunity or provide an opportunity for your audience to spend about eight weeks, seven or eight weeks. Um, is that what we have? Eight weeks on it? Eight yeah, weeks. right now we're, we're marketing it as eight, an eight week uh, yeah. course, two to three chapters a week. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, so um, eight weeks going through the Gospel of Matthew. Um, I think it is a great opportunity. I think people should, I'd really encourage them to uh, sign up. You know, I'm convinced that after you go through this Bible study, uh, you're you're not going to read the Gospels the same ever again. Uh, you're it's 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 pretty life changing. Some of the things as you work through the Gospel of Matthew and start to discover a lot of the illusions um, that come to the surface, a lot of the meanings of various parables, uh, various things that um, Jesus is saying and doing. Uh, and so, you know, Matthew's a, a theologian, right? He's a, a, a sacred historian, as Augustine calls Luke. But he's also, uh, he's also a theologian. You know, he's, he's telling these words and deeds, as Dei Verbum says, of God's presence and actions in history. And he's, um, he has a particular message he wants to get across to us. So um, a lot of that is going to be said here today in our Ascension lecture. But there are a lot of other cool things. So I think it's a great opportunity. I would recommend people sign up and uh and join for these eight weeks yeah so the eight week course costs a hundred dollars and you will not be disappointed i will tell you the i remember the i was just telling before we got on the air uh four years ago in 2020 ascension uh 2020 um we had our first me and chris had our first ascending his throne ascension day celebration and uh it's it was like one of my favorite podcasts and and his 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 uh unpacking the mystery of the holy scripture uh was fundamental to my own book city of god versus city of man really thematically throughout the whole book so i'm really excited for this bible study so i hope you'll join us uh, you can click the link below you can sign up or you can also email me editor at meaningofcatholic.com and then chris will send you the zoom link and he'll be communicating with everybody through email so that's what's going to happen. So, but before we get into our topic, one more time, Fowler, what are you drinking over there? Okay, it was going to be a really interesting cocktail called a Phoenix Bird that I got out of Michael Foley's book, Drinking with the Saints. But I tried it on Tuesday. So my, I sent my wife on a, uh, an amazing errand. I'm like, sweetheart, you have to go buy some banana cream liqueur. And she looked at me like I had two heads. Like, no, seriously, this is important. It's for Jesus. And she's like, well, I don't know what that means. Okay. So she comes home with this banana cream liqueur. And I thought, maybe I better give this a shot. I made the cocktail. It's got bourbon. It's got banana cream. It's got regular cream. It's got triple sec and something else. And it was awful. So long story short, I decided to go with the rye Manhattan. You can't go wrong with that. It's a little bit of rye, some sweet, sweet vermouth and bitters and some cherries. That's it. What are you cool. drinking, Flanders? I've got some cold coffee right here because it's way past my bedtime. So over here, in <laughs> e over here at Eastern time. So uh, <laughs> excellent. Well, Chris, Chris, what is the Ascension all about? What? 
All right. Go for All it. All right. Man. So just just to let the audience know, I'm going to be re, uh, reading my little mini lecture here. Um, I've just found that, you know, giving these talks over the last decade that I could jot down notes. I've done it before and then highlight the main themes, but it's just, I can get across a lot more in a shorter amount of time uh, when I write it out. So also this, this lecture that I'm giving will go up as an article on my website. I can also send it, we could also put it up on Meaning of Catholic as well. Um, and so you can check it out um, on my website or, or Flanders, we can put it up um, at, on yours as well. So sounds good. So I promise it won't be boring as I tell most of my audiences, you know, I'll go on little tangents and, uh, and it'll be fun. So, okay, let's begin. Okay. Whether or not your atonement theology has hit its mark or not, one test can tell you quicker than most. What account does it give of Jesus's ascension? If the ascension is tacked on as an afterthought at the end of an otherwise sophisticated theory about the crucifixion, about what it accomplished and why, then one can be sure that whatever else one wishes to say about the cross, it won't be that which is given to us by the authors of the New Testament. For them, the ascension was the point of view from which the cross and the resurrection and the kingdom make the sense they do. Thus, the challenge remains not only to give an account of the ascension as having some importance whatsoever, but of providing within that description the role and purpose of the ascension as the goal of both the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It isn't anyone's fault in particular that we have lost sight of this basic task. For centuries now, as Flanders alluded to, the Western emphasis on the cross has unintentionally displaced the ascension from taking center stage in our account of the gospel, of the meaning of Jesus' death, and of the purpose of the story as a whole. I was recently watching a popular Catholic Protestant debate, the, the one Candace Owens had on her show, online in which the challenge was put to the Catholic, her husband, as it often is during these sorts of things, to define the gospel. Whether or not the Catholic or Protestant actually formulated it correctly in this instance is neither here nor there. The point is that it is often all too easy, one, to shrink the gospel down into a simple formula cutting out bits and pieces that we think aren't really all that important, or two, to read out, screen out of that formula, the ascension as its proper climax. And from where we stand as Catholics, the feast of the ascension, which we're celebrating, itself has quite often been relegated to an after party when, after all the guests, after all the guests have left and the great celebration of Easter has drawn to a close, you and a few friends decide to grab a, drink, a few drinks at the local bar. From this perspective, it's as if whatever else the ascension is supposed to mean, it can't amount to the Easter party we all just came from. But the authors of the New Testament think this is to get the story entirely backwards. They are telling a different version of the story where the ascension in instead is the moment in which all the guests have just begun to arrive. It is the purpose, the goal, the climax of everything that the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus set the stage for and pointed towards. And thus, 
The ancient Paschal formula that Flanders cited earlier is not incorrect in sequencing the ascension as the grand finale of the Paschal mystery. Oftentimes you hear people say the passion and death of our Lord, and you're like, well, it's the passion, death, and resurrection. But it's actually the passion, death, resurrection, and ascension. The moment we've all been waiting for, the answer to the dangerous and pressing question, who really is the world's true Lord? As dangerous in the first century as it is in the 21st. Once the ascension comes back into focus, along with the socially and politically charged question about the world's true Lord, after years of being buried under platonic and epicurean rubble of the last several centuries, the gospel is seen once again for what it has always been. Not a simple formula, but the climax of a story that began with creation and continues to tell that story as the creator's own faithfulness to his original purpose in creating, rescuing, and redeeming humans. In short, it's a political message about who ought to rule the world and why. The gospel from the ascension point of view, from the, the point of view of the ascension, is actually about God. The parts about humans being redeemed, about being with God forever in heaven, about the many rooms prepared for us, about being saved from eternal torment, about being renewed as brothers and sisters in a bond of charity. All of this is as true as it ever was and ever will be, but it's only true within the larger purposes of God, which has always been since the beginning in Genesis 2.28 about God ruling the world, the thing we call the earth, through humans, the vocation of which is oftentimes called politics. Creation has been part of this story since day one. And the purpose of creation has always been to contain within it human beings who are destined to rule the world on God's behalf. As I have said on this show once or twice, and I've made the argument also elsewhere in, in other articles, this royal status is what the Bible means by the phrase image of God. It's not a coincidence then that this message about Jesus sitting at God's right hand about as Jesus tells us, all authority on earth belonging to him was summed up by the early church with the word gospel. The now famous inscription in Asia Minor hints at what this word meant when coupled with claims of a savior who has brought peace through his status as son of God and Lord of the world. These were political words in the first century, and there have been many layers of misunderstanding due to the failure on our part to grasp the documents of the New Testament in their first century historical context. As to, why we meet, <clears throat> as to why we misread them, there are several potential reasons. First, the political claim made by Jesus's ascension is the climactic moment of a very long story that has itself been largely forgotten or downplayed in part by relegating the Old Testament to merely a catalog of faith and sin stories, of heroes over here and sinners over there, much like sort of the Butler's Lives of the Saints, where story after story is sort of bracketed off and assigned a day. The problem with this is that it's not primarily how the biblical story actually works. Even the books of Ruth or Job, which focus on specific characters, make sense only within that larger story the Bible is telling. The several stories of the judges in the book of Judges can be read as character studies and should, 
but only against the backdrop of sin and death and Israel's failed vocation to rule the world as God's corporate representative. A story that began in, began in and is contextualized by Genesis 1 and 2. This then brings us to the second reason, which is that man's original vocation, which was passed on from Adam to Israel through Abraham, that's actually super key, has been read out of the biblical story such that when many Christians read the New Testament, the point about man's vocation being fulfilled in Christ, signified in and through Jesus' ascension, is misread instead as a simple story about Jesus going to heaven so we can meet him there with we can meet him there after we die. Of course, this is still as true as it's ever been. When we die, the goal is, as Paul says, to be with the Lord, which is far better. But the ascension. As the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises, which reverse the curse of Adam's sin, which is what Genesis 11 is all about, is much more than a story about individual souls and their personal salvation. It's about how those individual souls participate in God's saving rule over the earth with their bodies attached, if I can put it like that, as the means by which they are saved. It was this version of the story that laid the groundwork for Christendom. And until that reading is fully recovered, Christendom will not return anytime soon. The story, as I said earlier, is about God's reign on earth as it is in heaven. This is a God-centered story with humans playing their respective image-bearing roles within creation. This is, after all, what we pray for each and every day, our daily prayer as Catholics, although we sometimes miss it, our Father who art in heaven, dot, 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 your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Rather than at this point making the obvious ecclesiological point that the one who brings God's kingdom on earth as in heaven has extended that power to the papacy in binding the things of heaven on earth or bind, binding, yeah, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. What we need to look for instead is how the ascension lays the foundation for all of this. In other words, the papacy plays a role in this much larger story. You really can't actually understand the papacy without this larger story. And so the reason we must insist with Gabriel that Mary hail as queen or plead to her and with her that her son's kingdom come to earth as in heaven is that these are the kinds of prayers that make the most sense of the story of Israel, the story of Abraham, the story of Adam, and thus the story of God and creation fulfilled in Jesus as God's son, taking his rightful place at God's right hand, exercising authority over the nations of the earth, including America and Russia and all the others. And if using words like America and Russia make one, make, makes one feel uncomfortable, it was no less the case for the early Catholics and their Roman overlords who understood what all of this meant. They understood how it worked, as we're about to see. When we get to the end of Matthew's gospel, and read those closing lines given by Jesus himself, that all authority on earth belongs to him. We must be prepared to understand all that that entails. How should we read that? Should we screen that little political point out of our account of the gospel? Should we depoliticize it? Should we say, like modern scholars do with other portions of these texts, well, this doesn't fit my view of Jesus as I see him when I read the gospels, so this must be a text added later on as an anti-imperial impulse, which grew out of early Christian persecution, yada, yada, yada. Please, 
This is all part of the story the gospel writers are telling. And it's not just tacked on. Matthew just doesn't tack it on at the end of 27 otherwise politically neutral chapters. But instead, it runs right straight through the entire text. From the moment Jesus is called the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, in chapter 1, verse 1, through the stark contrast between Herod, the king of the Jews, who took it by force, or and the one born king of the Jews in chapter 2, through even the multiplication of the loaves and the ominous but exegetically explosive account of the healing of the man's withered hand. Luke says it's his right hand. What was that story all about anyway? All the way to the cross where the thief is able to recognize Jesus' enthronement such that he asks if he, although guilty, could enter into Jesus' kingdom. That's interesting. And finally, all the way up to the climactic moment when Jesus says that all the authority on earth belongs to him. Once you grasp the entire story, screening out that little bit as a later addition is seen really for what it is, our failure to understand how the narrative actually works. And lest we forget, one of these many titles, Messiah, Son of God, Son of David, etc., etc., Jesus favored most, which for him not only gave the immediate context of what his ministry was all about, but also provides us with the meaning of the ascension as the goal of everything he was saying and doing. That title is, what is Jesus' favorite title for himself? The Son of Man. And it's a title that comes to us from none other than the book of Daniel. The remainder of this lecture will be to explore the book of Daniel and show how it is that how it is that Jesus came to identify himself as the son of man and how his ascension is the climax and purpose of Jesus' very own identity and mission. And so here in the book of Daniel is where we must begin. All right. In my vision at night, says Daniel, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. It's precisely this passage from Daniel 7, verse 13, that Jesus alludes to at his trial, don't you know? Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed, asked the high priest, to which Jesus responds, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven, Mark 14, 62. It is an insufficient exegetical move to interrupt Jesus at this point, excuse me, Lord, by saying, well, that's nice, Jesus, but how do souls get to heaven when they die so that they can reach the world of pure forms, the thing that Plato was talking to us about? That's actually not how, what Jesus is talking about. Listen to Daniel once more. In my vision at night, I looked, and therefore before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Illusions in 2 Samuel. The universal extension of the Son of Man's earthly rule coincides with his ascension into the presence of the Ancient of Days. And therefore, what Jesus is alluding to, and no doubt the high priest is readily aware of, is precisely this. As the Son of Man, the power he refers to is the sovereign rule and authority Jesus is given over the nations of the world. 2 Kings 24, 
if you're reading along, sets the stage for the book of Daniel by telling us that the first group of exiles hauled off to Babylon under captivity. Daniel is among them. While in Babylon, it becomes clear that Daniel has been given prophetic gifts that are going to play an important role in the overall story. We discover these gifts in chapter two, where the king has a dream that no other wise men in all of Babylon can interpret. It's a classic story. We all know it. That is, except Daniel, who first passed the test of knowing the content of the dream so as to assure the king of its interpretation. The dream is of a giant statue with four types of metal. The head, we are told, is made of gold, the chest and arms of silver, the waist and thighs of bronze, the legs and feet partly of iron and partly of clay, partum and partum. Two source theory. No, I'm just kidding. Daniel, <laughs> partum and partum is in the, the Bible. <laughs> That's an inside joke. All right. Daniel says these metals are representative. <laughs> Daniel says these metals are representative of successive kingdoms, each of which are called by God to, to fulfill their image bearing vocation. To you, been given, King of Babylon, to you, God has been given, he, He's given you the nations to rule in His image. So, uh, so, so going back, Daniel says these metals are representative of successive kingdoms, each of which are called by God. They're all called by God to fulfill their image-bearing vocation to rule the world on God's behalf, as laid out in Genesis 1 and 2 and Psalm 8. It's all there for the taking. But instead, as the story goes on, the kingdoms have made images with their own hands. That's a really important part point. The very next chapter, Daniel 3, actually tells of Daniel's three friends refusing to worship in an idolatrous image made with human hands. Daniel says that each distinct metal part of the idol statue in the king's dream represents successive kingdoms that do this very thing. The dream, says Daniel, and confirmed by the king himself, ends with a stone cut out by no human hands. It's really important. That's, that's an allusion to this is not an, an image, an idol. Uh uh, coming and striking the image, chapter 2, verse 34, on its feet of iron and clay, breaking them in pieces. After the rock strikes the image made with human hands, it, the rock, which is God's kingdom, will then go on and fill the whole earth. Now, this reference to the image not made with human hands is picked up and carried forward by the New Testament authors to describe Jesus himself. Each sacred author, I can't do that. I can't prove this in the lecture, but, but, you know, come to the Bible study. Each sacred author does this in his own way. But for Paul, for instance, he speaks most explicitly of how the father has, quote, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He speaks of this kingdom a mere, a mere two verses before he explains to us that he, Jesus, is the is in the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or authorities, all things were created for him and through him. This creation imagery is almost always paired with the point that Jesus is the image of God. Take 2 Corinthians 4, 6, if you want another one. It's another example of this. Paul says, it is the God who said light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What's that all about? In fact, in verse four, Paul calls this the gospel, quote, the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the likeness of God, 
close quote. God's kingdom, God's image, and God's Christ. It's everything the kings of the earth have failed to bring, failed to become, and failed to receive as God's royal and, and anointed image bearers, which we now see fulfilled in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is Paul's point. Moreover, the whole point of John's gospel prologue, right, it's famous for this, is that the image of God tabernacling in our midst is not made with human hands, but has been begotten by God from all eternity. And Jesus tells us all this, I'm sorry, and John tells us all this in the context of his own account, fresh account of creation. In the beginning, God, in the beginning, God, you know, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, da, da, da. To the point, though, the book of Daniel is claiming that the kings of the earth, not just Babylon, but as John points out through his use of these exact same images with reference to Rome in, Re in the book of Revelation, all kings that refuse to worship the creator and his image, in other words, have made images of themselves to be worshipped and served. And to the extent that they do this, they become idolatrous. They sin and fall short of the glory of God, which they are called to reflect into the creation. Now, it's within this overall point that what Daniel says next is seen for what it is in view of Jesus's Paschal mystery. Daniel's descent into the lion's den, followed by his ascent, exaltation, and restoration to the right hand of the kingdom, parallels Jesus's own descent into hell and subsequent ascension into heaven, where he is seated on the throne like the one belonging to the Son of Man in Daniel's vision, which we're about to get to. Think of what Paul says here, that God accomplished in Christ all these things when he raised Jesus from the dead and made him sit at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above, above every name that is named, Ephesians 1, 20 through 21. Not so that we might escape the earth just before God destroys it for good so that we can be in Plato's world of forms forever. But as Paul says, right? This is Paul, not Plutarch. Quote, to unite all things in heaven and on earth. This is Jewish eschatology, Jewish soteriology. This is, to be sure, a familiar story. Not only extending itself forward in time to Jesus's own descent into hell and ascent into the king's right hand, to the king's right hand but also backwards to the patriarch Joseph's own eventual descent into prison after being sold into slavery by, by his brothers for 20 pieces of silver at the end of the book of Genesis, who we should note through his use of his gifts to interpret dreams, specifically the dream of Pharaoh, ascends to the right hand of the king of Egypt. But why does any of this matter? Because Joseph's story the pattern of which is Daniel's own story, itself points to Genesis 12 and the promises made to Abraham that through his family, the nations and the kingdoms of the world will worship the creator and reunite under the one Abrahamic family, which we find out at the end of Genesis is itself narrowed down to only one of those tribes within that family. The tribe of Judah, says Jacob on his deathbed, will carry the promise forward that of a chosen ruler who will unite and bless the nations. He mentions the scepter not departing from Judah's hand. But further still, those very promises first given to Abraham in Genesis 12 themselves point back to Genesis 11 and the scattering of the nations. 
and are given as the means, the promises are given as the means by which God would reverse the curse of Babel and reunite the families of the earth once more, having dealt with sin and idolatry and the serpent. It's Christus Victor Atonement motif all laid out there. God will fulfill the human vocation to rule the world on his behalf through Abraham's family, thus setting everything we've been saying and explaining within the context of creation itself, pulling us back still past Genesis 49, beyond Genesis 12 and 11 to the opening chapters of Genesis itself. All right, that was a lot. And much like the pressure of gravity building on one's chest as the roller coaster climbs to greater and greater heights, we feel the weight of all these texts and stories and characters building up. We ought to brace for what will surely cause whiplash to those of us who have already forgotten that the point of going back and up was so that the gravity might pull us back down with great speed to Daniel 7. But while we are catching our breath at this point for a brief moment of pause at the top of this little roller coaster analogy I'm using, ponder from this point of view the absurdity it is for someone, either Christian or non-Christian, to demand of us to provide a simple formula of the gospel, a formula which can almost always be used in such a way as to satisfy our desire to preach the gospel without ever having to do the hard and time-consuming work of building friendships with those we meet in which the gospel is not thrown out there as one is simply passing by, but is shared over not just one, but several cups of coffee, beginning with Genesis 1 and ending with Revelation 21 to be sure, but also all the details, the twists and turns in between, the covenants and everything. If it took Matthew 28, 28 chapters and Paul over a dozen letters, then one might understand why a simple formula just won't get it done, without either dumbing things down, of which Bishop Barron is always warning, warning us against, or two, screening out portions of the story, like the Ascension, that Paul and the other authors of the New Testament think are not just important, but essential parts of the identity and mission of the Messiah, Christ, Jesus. This may, might feel like so much digging into the story, but such is the case when one is in search of fine pearls. Buying this field of knowing why Jesus said what he said and did what he did will cost you the currency of which is time and attention to detail, picking up the illusions, following the track. You cannot cover it up with a simple formula. You must purchase the entire field. And that means selling all you have, which is simply the time that it takes to know the what and the when with regard to not the latest TV series or updated playoff brackets, but why it was that Jesus alluded to this or that at the moment when he did. It's not only the kingdom that lies hidden, but the value of the kingdom lies hidden as well. The time it takes to figure out how the story works demands that we set aside simple formulas of the gospel and wrestle with the story as a whole. And so as we take in the view from the top, we're reminded of all this just before we free fall into Daniel 7. In this particular chapter, the one having the dream in Daniel 7 is Daniel himself, and the one interpreting the dream is the angel Gabriel. Daniel sees four beasts emerge from the sea. Each beast, we find out, represents successive kingdoms of the earth, much like the king's dream in chapter 2. The, four beast, the fourth beast is mightier than the rest, with ten horns which represent kings which will devour the whole earth. But after Daniel sees the fourth beast, he looks up and sees thrones set up in the heavens one of which is occupied by the Ancient of Days, 
by God himself. Immediately after this, Daniel explains, quote, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This one, like the Son of Man, is the one that brings the end to exile and sets up God's everlasting kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Now, as, as to when all this is going to happen, Daniel is a bit confused because Jeremiah, when he consults the scroll of Jeremiah, Jeremiah says that the exile would only last 70 years. And with all these visions and successive kingdoms with their successive kings, it looks a bit like it's going to take a bit longer than 70 years. And so Daniel's suspicions are correct. After a lengthy prayer at the beginning of chapter 9, the angel Gabriel comes to him and explains that it's not 70 years, but dun, 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 70 weeks of years, 70 times 7, 490 years, until the anointed one, chapter 9, verse 25, 26, will arrive and put an end to exile. We aren't surprised then that it was Gabriel who appeared to Mary to announce the birth of Jesus and thus the end of exile, since it was Gabriel who announced the continuation of that exile. Now, there's much more that could be said at this point, but we're, we're running out of time, so I need to start wrapping it up. But it's important to note this, that we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls, the writings of guys like Josephus and elsewhere, that the 490 years since Daniel were just about up. And this meant that Jews were crunching the numbers, do, 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 expecting the Messiah to come at any moment in and around the first century AD. We actually know of several of these, right? Josephus actually mentions in Jewish war, an ambiguous oracle that led the Jews to revolt against Rome. He reports that, quote, what more than all else incited them to the war? This is the Jewish war of 70 AD where the temple is destroyed. Quote, what more than all else incited them to the war was an ambiguous oracle, hmm. likewise found in their scriptures, to the effect that at that time, one from their country would become ruler of the world, close quote. That's the Jewish historian Josephus. What oracle is he referring to? The Roman historian Tacitus picks up on this as well when recording his own account. Listen to what he says, quote, some few put a fearful meaning on these events, but in most, there was a firm persuasion that in the ancient records of their priests was contained a prediction of how at this very time, 7080, the East was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire universal empire, close quote. It's a great summary of the gospel, by the way. And Tacitus doesn't know that. Of course, his next line is, Quote, these mysterious prophecies had pointed to Vespasian and Titus, but the common people with the usual blindness of ambition had interpreted these mighty destinies of themselves and could not be brought even by disasters to believe the truth. In other words, the Romans came and destroyed and they realized this refers to the Roman emperor. It doesn't refer to some uh, someone from the line of David, some uh, someone from Israel, someone from the tribe of Judah. The story of Israel for Tacitus is no story whatsoever, but just foolish ambition on the part of poor, poor peasants. 
Tacitus, for as good as he is as a historian, clearly has no idea, like so many of us actually today, unfortunately, that there is a bigger story being told. Josephus, for his part, says that the oracle referred to Vespasian as well, since, quote, he, pro he was proclaimed emperor on Jewish soil, close quote. Not only them, but Suetonius refers not only to the oracle, not to the oracle itself, but, quote, a firm persuasion that had long prevailed through all the East, that it was fated for the empire of the world at that time to devolve on someone who should go forth from Judea. This prediction referred to a Roman emperor. He's talking about Vespasian, as the event showed. But the Jews applying it to themselves broke out in rebellion, close quote. What passage, what, what ambiguous oracle are they talking about? Of course, we could argue over which exact article or oracle Josephus and the others were referring to, but we don't have to because the answer is Daniel 9. Okay, it's the exact same illusion deployed by Jesus at his trial so as to contextualize everything that was about to come next, which is why people were freaking out that Jesus was about to start a rebellion. The story of the cross and the resurrection is actually a story about Jesus' ascension and therefore a story about his earthly rule over the nations. For those with ears to hear and eyes to see, this is the basic shape of the gospel. Now, from here, if one felt pressed to give a formula of the gospel, because the Protestant won't hear anything else you say unless you tell them what is the gospel, define for me the gospel, they keep insisting, then you could go on and cite the one that Paul gives to us, quote, the gospel which he preached beforehand to Abraham saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. Galatians 3, 8. So there's the gospel. Go out to the world, go out to the guys in the streets and tell them that through Abraham, God has fulfilled his promise. But that means that you would also have to go on to explain to them the rest of Galatians 3, the chapters that follow, the chapters that preceded, and the story in which the Abrahamic promises make the sense they do, the make the sense they make within the creation of the world and our vocation to rule in God's image. So if one were, say, to walk up to a stranger on the street and tell them this Pauline gospel formula, the good news that the Abrahamic promises have been fulfilled, they'll inevitably, this stranger will inevitably want to know who Abraham was, Q Genesis 12, what those promises were all about, Q Genesis 15, 17, 22, and in and through and and who, in and through whom the promises would eventually would eventually find their fulfillment, Q Daniel 7. If you give a mouse a formula, he'll want an entire story to go with it. And so because I can't go on forever saying all the things I wish to say in this brief talk, I leave you with a few things to ponder today. Jesus believes that he is the completion of a very long story. A huge part of that story is about how sins are forgiven and souls go to heaven. But the larger overarching story is about how those souls will receive their bodies back on the last day to participate and rule with the new Adam in the new creation. Q, Revelation 20 and 21. It's this larger story that helps us make sense of Jesus's ascension. And in fact, Jesus's ascension is also about him entering in. I had to throw this in, sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, and in fact, because this should be a whole paper in itself. Uh, and in fact, Jesus' ascension is also about him entering into the heavenly temple, not made with hands, 
so as to offer the eternal once and for all time sacrifice for us. So cue the book of Hebrews as well. So all of this needs to be held together as we resist as much as we can the temptation we might feel to boil things down, to slap our entire faith onto a simple bumper sticker, you know? Okay, lastly, although I don't have the time to make the case here, the authors of the New Testament believed that since the Messiah is already enthroned, the saints on earth are bound to proclaim and live out Jesus's rule on earth as it is in heaven right now. This challenges not only our Epicureanism, which some today call liberalism, of the West in general, but of our very own vision for the future of American political life. With the goal of, as Paul says, being conformed to the image of his son, Romans 8, 29, in all lowliness, humility, gentleness, and love. The end. Jesus is king, Chris. Thank you so much. I, I was uh, galvanized by your lecture. Thank you very much. What what came to mind first to me was um, the continuity with St. Luke and Acts. When Jesus is speaking, as you said, to the chief priests and uh, St. Luke 22, 69, he, Jesus says, hereafter the Son of God, Son of Man shall be sitting on the right hand of the power of God. And then St. Peter's first proclamation of the gospel includes the ascension as a an, as an essential piece of that proclamation because he says this this is acts 2 32 this jesus hath god raised again whereof we are all witnesses being exalted at the right hand of god and then he said david ascended not into heaven but he himself said the lord sit, said to my lord sit thou on my right hand until i make thy enemies thy footstool so the, that ascension is essential to the proclamation of Jesus is the Christ. And then there's St. Stephen, who has the vision. Yeah. What does he see? I see, uh, Acts 7, 55, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So it's this vision of Christ as exalted king, which is this, this sort of centerpiece and apex of this gospel proclamation. So, But I want to go to David. David, what are your thoughts so far on the ascension? Well, let it not be um, accused of us that we don't know our scriptures because Chris has given us a, a great exegesis and I'm, I'm a big sucker for typologies. And so, uh, but he did all of that without even touching the Psalms, which are full of Ascension imagery. Um, uh, but need, needless to say, uh, yes, um, you are correct in in that context. I, I come to come to thinking about how, as as Catholics, you know, regrettably we speak of the fact that we pay so little attention to the Ascension. And in fact, I was reading the other day uh, Jean Corbon's um, Wellspring of Worship. Jean Corbon is the one who wrote the. Um, the passage in the catechism on prayer and he said it it the lack of appreciation for this great mystery and it is truly a great mystery as we know uh is a the second glorious mystery and we should be reflecting on it at least at least uh, twice a week <laughs> um but he says 
there's a lack of appreciation because in our times and in our modern secular frame and worldview, we have a lack of understanding for mystery and a lack in understanding for paradox. Because, and even then, this parallels back to first century Judaism, where the paradox for the Jews was they were seeking an earthly triumphant king who would reign with an earthly power. Um, but rather the paradox of Christ is that he's all the more powerful when reigning in a place, in a kingdom that is unseen, in a, in a kingdom that is not tangible. And so now we, we can hearken back into Christ's dialogue with Pilate and John as well. Um, but all this begs the question is that um, I think this mystery of the ascension, which Chris so um, wonderfully uh, convinces us is really the keystone um, as far as really unlocking the scriptures and understanding the significant of, significance of Christ as king. Um, what, it, what it opens up for us um, as the train of thought departs, I guess is it, it rather, it's a call to action to greater contemplation. Um, because again, it is a mystery that is largely unseen. It's a mystery that is encountered in the liturgy. And it's a mystery that is, in fact, enacted with our own hands and feet. Um, I want to uh, quickly give uh, a little uh, scriptural exegesis of uh, Psalm 23, where we have the famous, uh, who is the king of glory? Lift up, op open up the, open up, lift high the gates, rather. Um, and uh, a lot of the church fathers, particularly Gregory of Nyssa, his exegesis of that psalm says that the angels in heaven, as they were anticipating the coming of Christ, didn't recognize him because he had enrobed himself in the lowly garments of humanity. He had humbled himself so much so as to bring into the kingdom something new, and that is our fleshly substance. Um, and so, yes, it is a call to action for for um, us to be the uh, heirs to the kingdom, the heirs to the prince, even here uh, in our worldly time. Um, so that's, that's uh, I'll, I'll, I'll pass the torch of my rambling on to another. Because we have a full party on screen here. David, could I, could I ask you a question? So you used the words um, like intangible, like the kingdom is intangible. Um, you said something else. Um, uh, but of course the, the, the point that I think they're making that, that the ascension, the point of the ascension, the point that Paul's making is that, that the kingdom is, is not a, another worldly kingdom. You know, it's not a spiritual kingdom that it is on earth. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so, and, and the reference with, when Jesus speaks with Pilate, that, um, uh, some translations are, are very poor with regard to. You know, my kingdom is not from my kingdom is not of this world, as if my kingdom does not belong to this world. Some translations are my kingdom does not belong. But but that what he's saying literally there is just my kingdom is not from this world. Right. So it is for this world because that's the only way to make sense of the Our Father prayer and everything else that's going on in in, in the Gospels that the kingdom. There's two ways to do it. You can either you can either spiritualize the kingdom, which Protestantism largely does, right? It's this spiritual thing, 
in in the heavens and, and we've at times bought into that and then you have also you can you can uh sort of uh push it to the end of time right the kingdom comes later right um and and what i want to resist what i think's going on in the new testament is they're resisting that that's not actually not there i don't think is there i think that's coming from whatever epicureanism protestantism platonism in our eschatology stuff the kingdom is here uh, that that's the that the only way to understand the papacy is to accept that premise. The the whole point, the reason why Protestants can't or struggle to understand the papacy is because this has been screened out for them. That the whole point was God's was about it was about God's kingdom coming to earth and to heaven. And so when we pray the Our Father prayer, it ought to be prayed differently by Catholics than for Protestants because we're seeing the fulfillment of that prayer in the papacy itself. That has later in chapter 16 the authority to bind the things on earth as in heaven. So, 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 and then also the there are passages in Paul. I mean, Paul thinks he's convinced that the kingdom is now. Like the 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 rulers of this world ought to um, ought to recognize this and and proclaim Christ as king. Uh, the governments, constitutions, whatever it takes, it, it needs to be recognized that Christ is king. So. I, I know you said intangible. I don't know what you meant if you meant like spiritual by that, but I just wanted to say. Yeah, yeah, in the sense that we we presently don't touch and don't see the the the, the manifestation of Christ and His glory, but you're right. And then in that us as modern Catholics, we have this temptation to fall into the error of of secularism and of and of liberalism, where we compartmentalize and privatize the faith as it exists in this sphere for private devotion. And I think even we as Catholics fall into that error where it's, it's no, it's, it's, it's more grand. It's in fact, all encompassing and all manifesting. Yeah. Father, what are your thoughts on all this? Well, first of all, I want to thank uh, Mr. Plants for a, a, a lovely presentation. I was enthralled the whole time. Uh, and I, know I wasn't the only one I was seeing some of the comments were very appreciative of, uh, your erudition regarding the scriptures. So thank you, Chris, uh, for being with us tonight and, and for that, that amazing lecture. I was hoping, um, I was reading some, some church fathers to kind of get my mind around uh, what exactly does the early church have to say about the ascension. And a lot of them uh, were really concerned with the bodily aspect of it. It isn't until uh, it seems the, the sermons of Leo the Great that you get anything other than simply an affirmation that, yeah, it was really a bodily ascension. So I wonder if you could maybe speak to why you think that is, if you have any thoughts on that. Um, and then when, when you finish with that, I've got a question about uh, Leo and how it ties in with Thomas's understanding of our salvation. So wh why do they hammer home the bodily ascension first? Well, the, the phrase, the one like the son of man is literally the one like the son of Adam. Okay. Because Adam has been given this vocation in Genesis one and two and all of humanity representing all of humanity to, to, to guard and to keep and to rule and have dominion over the world. Okay. When he, he user, uh, uh, he uh, forfeits that um, authority over the earth by giving in to Satan. Now God has some options here. You could either blow up the entire cosmos and say, forget it. I'm just going to, I'm just going to get rid of this creation thing. And, and, and I made a point in that, the, the lecture that what we're seeing from Genesis all the way through revelation is that that is not 
what God has done, that God has remained faithful to creation. And so that means that that soteriology or how we're saved or the plan of our salvation is going to include not a just swooping us away so that we can go to this platonic world of forms, but actually at the heart of it is going to be the restoration of mankind, which will include the resurrection of the body. And so the problem, the, the problem is when you get to Genesis 11 and you get the scattering of the nations, Abraham shows up on the scene as, pre as precisely this new Adam figure, this new Adamic figure. And as the story goes, you realize that the, the, the promise to guard and to keep, to, to multiply, has been passed on from Adam to Abraham. Abraham and his family and his seed are, are the ones that are, they're the corporate Adam, I think I called them in the lecture, right? So they're taking that promise forward. The problem, of course, is Israel is just as sinful as the rest. So God, again, is the resurrection is the, the, the evidence that we have that God is committed to restoring his creation. So in order to restore the creation, he needs to have an Adam-like, an Adam figure, a human who is ruling the earth on his behalf. So you could say, well, why doesn't the eternally begotten son just rule from heaven without a body? And that's because creation, as I said, is a big part of it. So the resurrection is intimately tied up with the ascension because we have one like the son of Adam, the son of man. Uh, sitting at the right hand of the father who is ruling. He he actually is ruling now. So it, it's a little, we have this, we have to get over and get beyond this idea of earth and then heaven is far away, right? In, in the mm -hmm. Jewish world, the, the, the earthly temple really was the heavenly temple. I mean, Catholics, we, we should be resisting this even more. God is truly present in our midst. And the spirit, this is why the spirit is often left out. That's a whole nother lecture. The spirit, Pentecost is a whole nother thing. The spirit's role, where is, what's the spirit's role in, in the entire story? It's the creation role. The spirit's there at creation. It's there hovering over the waters um, all throughout the Old Testament, all the way into the New Testament. The spirit descends at baptism. And then the spirit is the new creation. That's the role to do the new creation thing. And so that we now have, we now have a human where all authority has been given to him. He's not going to fall like the first Adam or like Israel. And so the spirit is now going to, if you go to Romans chapter eight, if you could turn, I, I know you wanted to get to another thing, but just Romans eight for a second. Um, he, Romans eight, 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning with labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the boom. That's Trinitarian soteriology right there. The first fruits of the spirit. And where does the spirit come from? The spirit was there at creation. The spirit's now here at the new creation. Grown inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
for in this hope we were saved. So the hope he's saying is that creation itself will be restored, but creation itself can't be restored unless you have wherever humans go, Mm -hmm. creation goes. If humans are subjected to sin, creation is going to rebel with them. So in order to get creation to be restored, you need a new Adam to, to, to be faithful. And so that's why I think that, I don't know if this is answer your question, but that's why I think the resurrection is really important. The incarnation of course is the resurrection is the resurrection as Pope Benedict said, is the first act of the new creation where the reason why we move from the seventh day of the week to now liturgy celebration on the first day of the week is the seventh day was the, the last day of the old creation, the covenant of the old creation. The first day is the covenant of the new creation. Okay. Right. No, no, I think that's, yeah, that was amazing. Um, it, it, so it seemed it, I, I think you're echoing exactly what Irenaeus and Origen, yes. uh, and, and Augustine were saying when I was reading them in my handy, uh, faith of the fathers, which is that the, our, our salvation is not confined to our souls, Yeah, but it's bodily and therefore it, it applies to all creation. And it sort of makes me think, um, that, it's kind of like you mentioned right at the very beginning, the story of our salvation isn't complete until Adam re-enters paradise. We have the new Adam entering the true paradise at the ascension. So he's bringing with him a human nature into the Holy of Holies, which then, you know, opens up perhaps a discussion about um, the, the ministry of the high priest What's he doing in there in the Holy of Holies? Well, he's offering himself on our behalf, uh, but he's he's present there before the Father in his incarnate, uh, in his body. Yeah, he's he's no longer disincarnate, and I think uh, that kind of dovetails nicely into something that Saint Leo says in one of his sermons. I'll just read a bit if you don't mind. Yeah, he says. Uh, There was a great and indescribable cause for rejoicing when, in the sight of the holy multitude, above the dignity of all heavenly creatures, above the dignity of all the angels, the nature of the human race went up to surpass the ranks of angels and to rise beyond the heights of the archangels, to have its being uplifted, limited by no sublimity, until received to sit with the eternal Father, it was associated on the throne of his glory to whose nature it was joined to the father's nature. Therefore it was joined in the son since therefore Christ's ascension is our uplifting. So right there we have, because he is the new madam, new Adam, the new father of the new creation. And he's ascended bodily. He's joined to the father. Now we're joined to the father. So it says, since therefore Christ's ascension is our uplifting. And the hope also of the body is raised to where the glory of the head has preceded it. Let us exalt with worthy joy and be glad in a pious thanksgiving. And he goes on today or to, to describe why today he's given the sermon on the ascension. Why there's rejoicing because Christ has conquered all of the evils. As you pointed out, he's reversed the curses. He's entered back into the paradise that Adam had lost and he's restored all the things that were originally intended for us so that leads me to sorry a little bit long-winded but that leads me to my next uh question for you which is after reading saint leo i turn to the summa i read that thomas says the ascension causes our salvation 
this was uh, the third part, question 50 something. It causes our salvation. What's up with that? What, what else does he say? Do you have, do you have it in front of you? Uh, I can get it. Well, well, I, 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 that, I, no, I, let me, let me just add this too. Uh, I, this, so this is the, um, that you can't really see this, but this is in the Latin mass. There's, there's two different times where the whole Paschal mystery is, is said in the offertory prayers, you say in memory of the passion, resurrection and ascension. And then in the canon itself, you say in memory of the blessed passion, the resurrection from the dead and the glorious ascension. But then in the Ascension preface, it's kind of like what St. Thomas is saying. It says, why did Jesus ascend to heaven? In the Ascension preface, it says that he might grant unto us to be sharers in his own divinity. That's the pithy reason given in the Roman uh, preface. Uh, Father, do you have anything to add from the Summa on that? Yeah, I found it. Uh, it was in my my uh, laptop bag behind me. So uh, Tertia Pars, question 57 article six i'll skip down to uh where he gives his answer so he says i answer that christ's ascension is the cause of our salvation in two ways first of all on our part secondly on his on our part insofar as by him or excuse me insofar as by the ascension our souls are lifted up to him because as stated above his ascension fosters faith hope and love Further, our reverence for him is thereby increased since we no longer deem him an earthly man, but the God of heaven. Thus, the apostle says, if we have known Christ according to the flesh, that is, as mortal, whereby we reputed him as a mere man, as the gloss interprets the words, but now we know him no longer. So we're saying, I think what Thomas means is that uh, it's now easier for us to associate him with the God of heaven now that he's ascended into heaven, and that leads us to faith hope, and love. The second reason he gives on Christ's part in regard to those things which in ascending he did for our salvation, first of all, he prepared the way for our ascent into heaven. Uh, let's see. I'm, I'm skipping some of the finer details in the quotes. Secondly, because as the high priest under the Old Testament entered the holy place to stand before God, so also Christ enter, entered heaven to make intercession for us. And thirdly, being established in his heavenly seat as God and Lord, he might send down gifts upon men according to Ephesians 4.10. He ascended above all the heavens that he might fill all things with his gifts. It just struck me. I, I guess I'm not trying to put you on the spot. It just struck me as... Uh, surprising i hadn't ever yeah. read that particular question in the summa before and to have thomas saying it so so bluntly yeah. the ascension causes our salvation i thought well i could have I, I expect that about the passion or even the passion death and resurrection but thomas makes no bones about it and i think it you know i don't know if you you read that part while you were preparing but it seems like your lecture is uh, uh, could be a one long gloss on Thomas and the fathers and the scriptures. Yeah, I, I think that it, you know it's interesting because I, I haven't read that. I, I haven't read that part. I probably have read that part, but I don't remember it. Um, uh, and what's interesting is I turned to Ephesians as soon as you asked that question, and then he brings up Ephesians. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I'm like, okay, so Thomas and I are tracking the same thing because Paul, Paul's going to probably, Paul's letter to the Ephesians is probably going to be where you're going to go to understand what this has to do with our soteriology. The first thing it does is it contextualizes our soteriology because it's telling us um, it, it's, it's, and this is why I brought up the atonement theology at the very beginning, because I'm doing work in, in atonement theology and studying it right now. And I'm a huge, uh, huge into the Christus Victor ransom model. And so I think that that model can best explain, or it's really an interpretation. Um, that interpretation of what happened on the cross can best explain what uh, the ascension. Because there are all sorts of questions as to when you use these models, Anselm's, Thomas's, um, you know, and others, you're trying to figure out what, how can, how can it, how can their account of the crucifixion also account for the ascension, right? Because it's all one event, the passion, death, resurrection, ascension of our Lord. So um, uh, I think the Christus Victor does a good job with, with explaining that because what you, the problem you have is that if I was to, to bring in Augustine on the Trinity right now, he would say that when Adam sinned, he transferred over the rights of this earth to Satan. So Satan is the ruler of this world. You know, over 21 times this is used in the New Testament. He's the ruler of this world. The, you know, the, um, uh, the prince, the prince of, prince of this world, you know, uh, in John, uh, Jesus says, now is the time where the ruler of this world will be cast out. So basically the cross is just uh, the, a major exorcism. The cross is an exorcism. That's what it is. It's kicking Satan out. And so dethroning Satan by enthroning Christ. That's, that's, what, that's what I think links the, the, the cross, resurrection, and ascension together. And therefore, soteriology is interpreted by, I mean, take John, First uh, John, uh-oh, First uh, John 3, uh, verse 8, he, um, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So, and other passages as well. I mean, you can see it in Paul in, in Ephesians to pick up where Thomas is tracking in Ephesians 2, a couple chapters before Thomas uh, cites his text. Um, I mean, the, the, the citation to go, just let's go with Thomas for a second here. The citation he uses is, I mean, look at it. He says, and he cites 11, but go right before, because Thomas must have been reading, obviously, this. He says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also, uh, uh, is he who ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And, and earlier in Ephesians, it's things in heaven, things on earth. And, that, and I cite that in the lecture. And his gifts were that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, da, 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 da. So this, the gifts that he gives are exactly, I mean, this is taken out of like when uh, any Roman emperor or general would go in and destroy, he would take and deliver gifts to his soldiers, come back and deliver gifts to the city. Right. That's what um, that's what's going on. And what he did is he descended, kicked Satan's, you know what? And then basically the way like Augustine kind of gets at it is um, uh, he forfeits his his rights over us. And so he takes captivity captive. He takes us captive and then takes us captives. And like Galatians four says. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born of law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And if sons, then we have the spirit of sonship 
crying Abba Father. So in other words, he keeps us, he gets us captive, he descends, de defeats Satan, takes captivity captive, and then restores us to sonship in his image, allowing us to rule be, rule with him in the new creation. This is all in Ephesians 2 to go back a couple chapters. You know, he made us alive and you he made alive when you were dead through the trespasses of sin in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. So he ripped us from Satan's grip and then restored us as sons. And um, so Ephesians 2, Ephesians 4, I think that's all key. That's part of the soter. That's how you connect to the ascension with soteriology, if that's getting. Maybe that's what Thomas mm -hmm. is getting. No, I, th I think that's I think that's correct. Uh, last thing, then I'll hand it back off to Flanders or or uh, Haleva. Going with Ephesians four ten, he ascended above all the heavens that he might fill all things. That is with his gifts, according to the gloss. Thomas says, when I read that earlier, the first thing I thought of was the Eucharist. Uh, in order for our Lord to have the ubiquity of his body and blood here on earth in every tabernacle at every mass. He has to ascend. Now, physically, no, it's possible with him on earth, but it seems more fitting. And I, I was reading, it was a podcast, I don't remember. Recently, somebody mentioned that the entire purpose of the incarnation, uh, you could think of it as all this is pointing toward the Eucharist, to share his very life with us and to lead us to him so that we may have the fullness of life in him, right? What are your thoughts on that? Am I way off base here? No, I mean, that sounds really good. Um, I wish I could talk <laughs> about the Eucharist because uh, the Eucharist is, for those who are at, in the Matthew Bible study, you'll really get a picture of the meaning of the Eucharist. That, that of course, it is the transcript. It is, it is Jesus' body, blood, soul, and divinity. But there's a specific purpose that in that that's that Jesus has for when he takes blesses breaks gives to the bishops the bishops give to the priests the priests give it to the laity that's all uh, uh that is the moment in which the nations have all come together it's going to take it'll take a like uh one or two of our studies in Matthew to get that point across but that's the go the gospel is is about uniting a uh, uniting Jew and Gentile it's not, it's not like a sexy formula for the gospel, but that like, if you go to Ephesians, Ephesians uh, chapter one, you listen to Paul says, he, uh, Paul says, for this reason, because I have heard verse 15 of your faith in Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, which are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power in us who believe according to the working of his great might, which he accomplished in Christ when he raised him from the dead and made him sit at his right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above. All, I'm sorry. Wait. Oh, Ephesians, Ephesians three verse four, where he says, when you read this, because so this is where Daniel's going to come in because he's talking about mystery and that's coming from Mysterion is coming right from the book of Daniel, right? He is the God who reveals mysteries. So Paul's picking up on Daniel when, in, in chapter three, I'm sorry, uh, where he says, uh, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me 
for you how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. That's right out of Daniel. As I have briefly written, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men uh, in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What is it? Is it the Eucharist? Is it the Trinitarian formula? Is it how Mary is assumed in heaven? What is the hidden mystery from all eternity that God has now revealed? How the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body? <laughs> it's like, oh, hey, I'll drink to that. Yeah. This boy is going to drink to that. Come on. The man. mystery hidden from all eternity is how Jews and Gentiles are part of the same body. And it's like, well, yeah, if you're not picking up on how the story works, that was what the story is all about. It was the reversal of Babel, it was all the nations coming back in through. Uh, Abraham's family, the union of Jew and Gentile, and the Eucharist. I wish we could go through Matthew's gospel right now. <laughs> no, no, too much. Too we much. Won't, we won't. We won't. We won't. Matthew, like, I'm up today. Does, Operators are standing by. Does in, right. in in his in in the way he structures the 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 uh, multiplication of the loaves, the two stories, and the stories that are around that. Is is pretty unbelievable, and that's what the whole healing of the man with the withered hands all about. Uh, because uh, oh, so many tangents happening right now. But the point is, is that when he takes, blesses, breaks, distributes, he finally brings the nations all together as one. And so, what you see in, is the fulfillment of that in the mass, where the nations come together, are gathering together to sell to to. Um, to celebrate and uh, to be to, the, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises of Genesis 12 is fulfilled at the mass. Just leave it there. Go to the Bible study. All right. Holeva, any final thoughts from you? Yeah. As we're talking about mysteries, um, what came to mind is uh, going back to, you know, my theme of sort of discussing how in modernity we, we seem to have things flipped. Um, what should be, as we're talking about this incredible mystery is, is often actually veiled in obscurity and mediocrity. Um, there's this sense that um, it's interesting how, in fact, some of the most mind-blowing mysteries pertaining to Christ, such as his incarnation. So the Annunciation actually happens in the relative silence of Mary's prayer chamber and is actually unknown to the broader populace. Uh, and then Christ's birth the actual um, revealing, the first revealing of, of God made flesh to the world is also relatively unknown other than to a few shepherd people. It's only really in the Paschal mystery that the announcement of really the purpose of Christ's coming is, is made out loud to public. Um, I forget who said it, but uh, someone made, some famous saint, made the comment that the crucifixion was the most public act that ever occurred. And then from that, we have the resurrection, which was then proclamated to the rest of the peoples of the world, um, first by the women and then by the apostles. And then the ascension is another public act of worship, such that the men of Galilee ask, why are you guys looking up at the heavens? Like, what's going on? There's the, the inquiry, and then soon coming, Pentecost, where we are filled with the Holy Spirit to then go out and publicly proclaim. 
And so there's this interesting point that I read here in Jean Danielou's. If we're going to make this a communio podcast, we have to bring in a resource theologian. <laughs> and Jean hey, Danielou's hey, this is not a communio podcast. <laughs> What did you, uh, sorry. Uh, the Bible, <laughs> the Bible and the liturgy, he quotes someone saying, but we speak of the wisdom of God, mysterious and hidden, a wisdom which none of the rulers of this world had known, for if they had known it, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. And so thanks be to God that he kept things hidden until this time when four guys from different time zones and speak of this incredible mystery at the exact same time. Yeah, beautiful. That's beautiful. There we go. Perfect. Well, this is a uh, uh, beautiful, fantastic. Uh, thank you so much, Chris. Chris, do you have any final wrapping up thoughts on the Ascension? No, just thank you guys for having me on. And uh, I look forward to catching uh, more of your guys' uh, St. Joseph uh Dialogos, Dialogos. Dialogos, yep. Dialogos. How uh, uh, how long is the series going? Just every month. Uh, in Eternum. In Eternum. Uh, yeah, until yeah. we die. In Secula. So our world. kids will take over for us. There Jack and Scott will be going back and forth. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, so, um, so sign up for the Bible study. St. Matthew's Gospel. I'm just really excited. I'm really jazzed for this uh, lecture with Chris. Uh, this is going to be great. So you can click on the link below to join the Bible study. Once again, it's $100. It's eight weeks long. It's uh, at 5.30 p.m. Pacific time, which is 8.30 p.m. Eastern time and everything in between. Starting on the Tuesday after Trinity Sunday, which is June 6th. Is it June 6th? I think it's June 6th. What did I write down? Yeah, June 6th. Okay. Starting June 6th. So... Operators are standing by and all that. Good. We're prohibited. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we're, we'll uh, offer up our, our final uh, St. Joseph prayer. Uh, we offer up all our conversations to St. Joseph as the patron of the universal church. As we uh, in, in this prayer, this prayer is, was composed shortly after the um, the captivity of the Vatican, as they say, after the um, the invasion of the Vatican by the Italian revolutionaries after the first Vatican Council. Um, but this is still a propose to our situation that we always pray for the liberty and exaltation of Holy Mother Church. So let's pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. O most powerful patriarch, St. Joseph, patron of that universal church, which has always invoked thee in anxieties and tribulations. From the lofty seat of thy glory, lovingly regard the Catholic world. Let it move thy paternal heart to see the mystical spouse of Christ and his vicar weakened by sorrow and persecuted by powerful enemies. We beseech thee by the most bitter suffering thou didst experience on earth to wipe away in mercy the tears of the revered pontiff to defend and liberate him and to intercede with the giver of peace and charity, that every hostile power being overcome and every error being destroyed, the whole church may serve the God of all blessings in perfect liberty. Amen. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus is King. Amen.